for now, let's though turn to the book of Proverbs again. Would you uh, open your copy of the scriptures, please, to Proverbs chapter 10? Proverbs 10. Uh, when I came in the room this morning, someone uh, walked up to me and said, Hey, can I tell you a good dad joke? You always know that's, that's setting the expectation pretty high. I said, Sure. And uh, he said, um, I know why you're preaching on this subject today. And I said, why? And he said, well, you got to save for a rainy day. <laughs> dun, dun. I thought it was pretty good, but I am a dad, so. On the morning of June 30th, 1859, roughly 25,000 people got on shuttles and came to the banks of Niagara Falls. Now, these thrill-seekers were there to watch a Frenchman named Charles Blondin attempt a feat most believed to be impossible. Shortly before 5 p.m., he took his first step on the 1,300-foot long rope strung over the falls. Now, we're accustomed today to YouTube and people doing all kinds of idiotic things. But in 1859, people didn't do that. This was unusual. Holding only a balance pole, if you've ever seen pictures of this, uh, the, the pole was 24 feet long and weighed 50 pounds. That's insane. He set off to be the first person ever to cross the gorge. The 25,000 below him, many of them apparently were placing bets on whether he would make it or not. Charles was a bit of a showman. When he made it about a third of the way, to everybody's surprise, he sat down on the rope, pulled out a rope of his own, lowered it down to the ship underneath him, and pulled back up a bottle of wine, uncorked it, and had a bit. Now, of all the things you shouldn't probably drink and do, this would be one of them, but he did it anyway. He made it across to the Canadian side, returned just fine, and immediately announced another performance on July 4th, so a few days later. He came back and upped the ante quite a bit. His first trip across, he danced backwards. And then on the return trip, he put a large sack over his entire body so he couldn't see. And he walked back blind. He went on to do this some 300 times over the course of his life. Walking a tightrope means that if you fall on either side, it's over. You've got to keep your balance, not veering to the right or to the left, but staying right in the middle. Today, we're going to try to walk a bit of a tightrope together. We're going to walk the tightrope of doing something the Proverbs tell us to do. That's to save. But the Proverbs tell us that it is both right and risky to reserve money. Is both. The tightrope is probably obvious to you. On the one hand, the Bible commands saving. It's right to save. In fact, it's foolish not to. Many blessings flow from regular, systematic saving. And yet, on the other hand, saving ordinarily over a long term will generally lead to wealth. And wealth brings tremendous temptation. 
The Bible indicates riches leave people in a far graver position spiritually than they might think. It's risky to our souls to have too much money stored up. And so the reality is that it is both helpful and perilous to save. And therefore, we're left in a position where what we need is wisdom. Thankfully, God, in His kindness, has left us the book of Proverbs, which is filled with wisdom. And it might surprise you, but the book of Proverbs speaks very directly to the importance of savings. If we don't save, we may fall to ruin. If we do save, we've got to be very careful or we may fall in the opposite direction. And so we turn this morning to the book of Proverbs. Proverbs is going to tell us first that it's right to reserve money. Part of our responsibility as stewards of God's resources is to prioritize saving for future needs and increased generosity. Now, whatever your initial reaction to that is, I hope you'll suspend judgment and listen to what the Proverbs say. Proverbs chapter 10, look at verse 4 with me. A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. He who gathers in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. We know from the book of Proverbs, including these, that the wise work hard, and then after they work, they give first and save second. And so the reason we've ordered these sermons the way we have is because that's the priority level that Scripture places on these things. We work first, and then because we work, we make some money. And the first thing we do out of that money is give. And the second thing we do is save. And next week, we'll talk about the last thing, which is spend. Now the backdrop to these two verses is one that Proverbs often speaks to. It is the great dichotomy between those who are diligent and those who are lazy. We've explored together the fact that work, according to the Bible, is not a necessary evil. It's a worthy good. That hard work, regardless of the kind of work you do, is inherently valuable. There's dignity in being a white-collar worker, and there's dignity in being a blue-collar worker. Because as we do whatever it is we do, assuming it's not sinful, then we are living out an aspect of being made in the image of God. And not only that, as we work hard, we're working ultimately for the Lord. And so in the way God has wired the world, that work will produce an income. And that income, if saved, will ordinarily build wealth. Now, why is that? Why did God do it this way? Well, verse 5 puts it in rather graphic terms. A son who works hard in the summer will provide ample savings for food in winter. You see, in the ancient world, you didn't go to fries or sprouts. Definitely didn't go to Whole Foods. No, you ate what you grew. And so if you didn't work, 
Then when the harvest was over, if you had not harvested anything, then you would be in big trouble in the winter. The son who lazily lounges around brings shame on the family. Why? Because there wasn't the savings to draw from in terms of food for the winter. Now we're going to look at a lot of Proverbs this morning. You, you may want to flip the, to them all in your Bible. You may get tired of that and just want to jot them down. They'll be on the screens. But my suspicion is a lot of us may never have considered, does the Scripture instruct us to, get, to, get, to save? We've heard the giving part, but have you ever heard the saving part? And so I want to show you by sheer volume how many times the Proverbs do refer to this. Proverbs 12, verse 11 says, Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits lacks sense. Now, we'll have plenty of bread can't mean we'll have plenty of bread for today. Because even if you try, you can't eat today for what you'll need in a month. Some of us will try at lunch and it won't work. You see, you don't get hungry today for what you need to eat in a month. You get hungry today for today. But saving will mean that when there's no more harvest, you won't starve because there will be money saved. This proverb speaks to the truth that those who work well will ordinarily have their needs met. And the nature of those needs necessitates savings. See, in the ancient world, savings was largely done by storing goods. They didn't have bank accounts. No, they would harvest the grain in the time of year that it came, and then they would save some of that grain for winter. Now, in contrast to that is the worker who this proverb says pursues worthless pursuits. The word worthless in verse 11 refers to something that's vain or empty. Uh, If any of you are using the New Living Translation, it uses the word fantasy. I find it amazing that a book written thousands of years ago to people in a completely different kind of economic society is still able to speak exactly to our own human nature. It hasn't changed. You see, if you don't have money saved, then what happens when needs come up? Well, you panic. Instead of working hard, people often find themselves jumping at every fantasy that comes along. Playing the lottery, shady investing, going to the casino, misrepresenting an item you're selling on eBay. Church, the Scriptures would tell us these these are all wasting energy for easy money and that it doesn't work. No one in the end ever gets something for nothing. We live in a time when it seems like there is a scam or a scheme at every turn. And these scams and schemes are largely done by people who are trying to grow their wealth without hard work. And God says that doesn't work. Instead, we're simply to work hard, give some, and save some. And that will avoid so much heartache in life. 
if we'll just follow those simple steps. Another proverb speaks to this as well. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 20. It says, Precious treasure and oil are in a wise man's dwelling, but a foolish man devours it. This points to the fact that saving requires restraint and it yields reward. Now, don't misunderstand. This isn't telling us that wisdom says a Maserati is better than a minivan. It's not indicating that people with an iPhone 12 are better than people with a 6. It's not telling us that Gucci is morally superior and adds more value to your life than Old Navy. Now, the point is simply that wise people save. Saving today will take care of unexpected needs tomorrow. Now, it tells us that by virtue of the economy that existed then. If you lived in Israel, when Proverbs was written, you grew wheat one part of the year, and you grew olives the other part of the year. Those olives were placed into huge stone vats and then churned, and that produced olive oil. That olive oil was used for cooking. And then, among those who would save, that olive oil could then be used for extra things. It was seen as a, as a delight, as a luxury. And principally, it was used to soothe dry, cracked, injured skin. Now, contrary to what some of you think, lotion is not necessary for survival. But it does help alleviate discomfort. Beloved, saving is one godly means to take care of future needs. And it's a discipline that must be cultivated spiritually. Because savings requires a denial of self. Our world presents us with wants in such a way that we are often tempted to see them as needs. But many times they're just that, they're wants. But a purchase delayed in order to save is often money redeemed. You see, brothers and sisters, it is foolish to live for instant gratification. There's a reason why when you go to the grocery store, there's all that junk right by you while you're waiting in line. That didn't just happen, right? It's there for impulse buying. And life is full of opportunities for impulse buying. It is foolish to live for instant gratification. If you look at verse 20, it uses the word devour. The one who devours things is foolish. As I was preparing this week, I couldn't help but think of my dogs. We have two, and uh, they like to hang around in the kitchen. When you're doing Dishes, if there's a little left, you might, you might bless them. But they seem to think that within 20 seconds of that food being given to them, there's going to be a nuclear holocaust. And so they wolf it down. So much so, I am sure they don't taste it. They're not enjoying it. What would it be like if one of these dogs said to himself, you know, 
I think I'm going to stash a little bit for later. When they're watching the TV, I'm going to get that back out and I'm going to munch slowly. And I'm going to savor. Not devour. They're never going to do that. But friends, how many of us spend our paychecks like that? How many of us are animal-like in our spending? God's Word gives us a better way. It says to work, give, save, and only then spend. The majority of people, and probably the majority of us, do not follow this basic advice. A major study a few years ago found that 78% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck. That trend has been confirmed by other studies, which put the number at somewhere between 50 to 80%. Friend, if we take the lowest number, that's half. Half of us are having to juggle when we pay something, living with the constant stress of checking our apps to see if the last check we sent is going to bounce. Friend, you really can become wise. You don't have to live like that. If you've never saved much at all, then there's no better time than to start today. And by God's grace, you can. Practically speaking, that means doing something like opening a savings account online. You can do that after the gathering ends. You don't have to go anywhere. You can do it right on your phone, and it won't cost you anything. You can set up to have a little bit of money withdrawn from your check and deposited somewhere else, and then you can simply pretend it's not there. That, over time, makes a huge difference. You can do that. Now, why am I so sure? Well, we know this is possible because it's related to a fruit of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5 teaches that one of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. The way we become faithful in saving is not mainly to focus on saving. It's to focus on God. If our joy and delight and uh, insight is peered on Him in His Word, if we start each day like that, if we give ourselves to knowing God, delighting in God, turning from sin and turning to Him, then friend, what will happen is the Holy Spirit will begin to display the transforming power of your character being different. And part of that difference will be self-control. Now, it is true, there are a very, very few who are in a situation such that, for example, a single mom with two or three little kids working a low-paying job, and those kids aren't in school yet, so they have to pay, you have to pay for your child care. That is the situation in which the whole body needs to help her because it won't be possible, probably, to actually meet the present needs. But for the majority of us, 
the, the cold hard fact is, if you make $10,000, you spend 12. If you make 30, you spend 35. If you make 50, you spend 60. If you make 100, you spend 120. The issue isn't the size of the check. That's a lie. The issue is the heart. But this can be different because you have the same power within you that caused Jesus to be resurrected. Certainly that same power is sufficient to change what you do with a paycheck. Now, we talked a little bit about saving requiring restraint, but consider now with me some of the rewards of saving. Proverbs 21 verse 20 clearly includes the implication that if you've not exhausted the resources God has entrusted to you, then in the future you'll have what you need. If COVID caused you to lose your job and you had saved, then that next week there would still be food in the pantry. You could still put gas in the car. And for a while, at least, you could still pay rent. Imagine with me, beloved, the absence of stress or the lowering of stress if you didn't live paycheck to paycheck. Feel the elephant of credit card debt being lifted off your chest, never to return. Consider what it would feel like to not have more month than you have money. Imagine being able to fix a broken water heater without sweating the unexpected expense. These are just a few of the practical, simple rewards of having money saved. The typical American has $6,354 on their balance in their credit card. $6,354. If you never put another purchase on it and you only paid the minimum, it would take you seven years to pay off that $6,000. And in the end, it would have cost you eleven. dollars Beloved, if you exercise godly restraint, and develop some savings, then you wouldn't have that kind of credit card debt. And that, for many of us, is the difference between living paycheck to paycheck and having a bit of breathing room. But reason with me even further, because all of those needs that I just outlined, or blessings, or rewards, are really only about you. There are more things that happen when one has savings. Imagine sitting in your gospel community this week and hearing about a sister in the group who lost her job. If you had savings and you knew that she didn't, you could go to Fry's on the way home, buy a $200 gift card, and drop it in the mail. Or imagine you've been discipling a, a brother and after months together, he finally tells you he's confused about some very 
uh, basic matters of faith and that he just doesn't read. But he'd be willing, but he doesn't know where to start. And so as you sit in your car before you even drive home on Amazon, you could pull up a book that you know to be good, put his address in and send it to him. Imagine uh, sitting in a restaurant and because you're a Christian, you're kind and friendly. And in so doing, you hear a waiter make an offhanded comment about how hard the last year has been for him financially. And that it's been tough just to survive. And so when you get your $10 bill, if you've got savings, you could leave a $40 tip and leave a note on the check about your knowledge of a generous God. Friends, savings means more freedom to give. It means the ability in those spontaneous moments to live not principally for yourself, but for Him, and then Him using you as a conduit for grace and mercy to others. Now, how do you get there? If all this sounds nice, but really you feel like that's absolutely impossible in your present circumstances, how is it that you could go from here to there? Well, Proverbs actually answers that question. It tells us how to do this. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 11, puts it this way. Wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase it. Church, when it comes to money and savings, consistency trumps speed. Consistency trumps speed. When you're building savings, speed's not an ally. Hurry is an enemy. Consistency over the long term, that's your friend. Persistent, consistent savings is far better than a hasty, rash attempt to somehow get money on the side of some other source. Proverbs 28.20 says, A faithful man will abound in blessings. But whoever hastens to be rich will not go unpunished. Proverbs 21.5, The plans of the diligent surely lead to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. You may have seen in the last week uh, that the uh, jackpot, the national mega millions jackpot, hit a little over a billion dollars. And on Friday, somebody bought the ticket. Now, let's be straight with each other. Doesn't that sound nice? <laughs> if I read this morning that if that person chooses to take a one-time payout after taxes, they'll get a little over $500 million. That is uh, a lot of money very quickly. But... These Proverbs are saying, don't do that. Do the opposite. Save little by little by little, and you'll end up with more if you do it that way. So what do we do when the news is telling us, go buy a lottery ticket, because you could win a billion dollars. And Proverbs is telling us, 
get-rich-quick schemes are that. They're a scheme. They don't work. If you don't believe Proverbs, shame on you. But if you need a little more than that, a wagging of the finger, that's a no-no, then do a little research on what happens to people who win the lottery. You might be shocked. Winning a lot of money overnight is one of the best surest and fastest ways to ruin your life. Brothers and sisters, if you're not saving now, or you are a little and you realize you should do more, then don't panic. Don't feel condemned. Don't throw your hands up in the air and say, ah! Instead, repent for living foolishly. And then rejoice in God's good, sweet, total forgiveness. Then, make a plan to get started. Even if you can only save $5 every paycheck, start there. If you're single and this feels overwhelming and you feel alone in it, then invite another church member or two into it. Let them know your situation. Parents, if your kids get any kind of paycheck at all, meaning allowance, then teach them from the youngest days, you give a little, you save a little, and then do what you want with the rest. Adults who have a decade or two or three or four of good experience from the school of hard knocks, if you've learned how to do this, then look around. In God's kindness, He's placed you in a church largely full of young people. And guess what? Most of them absolutely suck at this. They need help. So look beyond yourself to the family that you have covenanted with and build relationships with people and get into their lives, even into conversations about money. If you would devote a little bit of time to that, my suspicion is you would be filled with question after question after question, and you would be able to tell stories of how God's been faithful to you. And then, friend, if you have it, if you're discipling someone and they tell you, I'm crossing the Rubicon, I have opened that savings account, I'm going to start saving, then give them a 50 to get started. These are the things the people of God do together. Start small, the proverb says, little by little, over time, it really adds up. Most financial coaches would tell you that your initial goal when you start saving is simply to create an emergency fund. A fund, say, of $1,000 in which you're not saving for some specific future pur purchase. You're only saving for when life hits the fan, and there's needs that arise. While the book of Proverbs doesn't say that, it certainly would be consistent with what the book does say. So start there. Now, all of this raises a very, very, very important question. How much is enough? If 
you begin actually doing this and building it as a habit into your life. Not because you're so great, but because the fruit of the Spirit has developed self-control in you. Then, over time, you'll begin to need to be asking, is this enough? Have I saved enough? Well, there's no simple answer to that question. But I want to encourage you to think perhaps in a way that maybe you don't often. Most of the time when I hear people talk about saving, they're, they're, they're saving for a specific purchase. I'm saving because I want to buy a used car. I'm saving because I want a new iPhone. I'm saving because I need a laptop. And that's great. Keep doing it. But I want to encourage you to think much, much, much longer term about saving. About saving for for others. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 22 says, A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. But the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. Friend, how much is too much? There is no set answer to that question. But if you save a little for a very, very long time, then by God's grace, not only will that bless you, it'll bless people long after you. That's such a cool idea, isn't it? There's nothing in the Bible that would tell us that in God's economy, all people should have exactly the same amount of wealth. That's a a thought that's sometimes thrown around today, that it's not just for one person to have this amount and another to have a different amount. But that has nothing to do with justice. Just It would not be just for someone with way more than they could ever need in a position of power and authority, taking advantage of and being unjust towards someone with very little. That is a justice issue. The rich preying on the poor, not giving them what's rightly theirs. But the idea that justice means that God's a communist and everyone should have the same, regardless of how hard they work. That's just not true. So there's no set answer to the question, how much is enough? Because we all make different amounts of money. But, while it's not sinful to have a a large amount of money, if you are one of the few butting up against that reality, then you need to realize that saving can become idolatrous. And even if you don't have a lot in terms of a paycheck, but you've saved relative to that paycheck an exorbitant amount of money, you also need to know saving can become idolatrous. There's a place in Luke chapter 12 when Jesus told a parable of a man who already had a lot. He had saved a ton. He'd been faithful in that. And then he got an unexpectedly large crop. And instead of giving that away like he should have, he said to himself, Self, I'm going to tear down my barns and build bigger ones. Because that's how you saved them. It wasn't an economic uh, uh, dollars economy. It was food. And so he said, I want to build even more. I want to have a bigger savings account. 
I want to max out my 401k for the purposes of never working again. He wanted to be lazy for the rest of his life. Well, Jesus had some very, very strong words for that guy. In fact, with a nod to the Proverbs, he called him a fool. Friend, how much is too much? I don't know. But if it ever causes you to say, I'm never going to do anything. My whole goal is to sit. Then that's too much. Church, we ought to save, but in so doing we must be cautious. Because it's not only right to save, it's also risky. It's risky to reserve money. Proverbs chapter 23 says, Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eye lights on it, it is gone, for it suddenly sprouts wings, flying like an eagle towards heaven. Have you had that kind of day? It just seems to fly away. This proverb is teaching us not to exhaust ourselves for something that's elusive. Now, here's a bit of the tightrope we talked about earlier. Hard work is good. It's right. It's godly. And saving is good and right and godly. But if you're not careful, especially once you start doing it and you see its benefits, then you can go too far. You can give yourself to the kind of life that is a life of endless toil, working more and more and more and more and more to see those zeros grow. And that kind of toiling puts far too much weight on wealth. Working to be rich must not become the endless wearing of your body, must not consume you, must not be the most important thing. Toiling to save in an endless pursuit for more will leave you unsatisfied, sick, and alone. The stock market can take a nosedive and all that savings can be gone. If you're always pursuing more and you work yourself down to nothing, what did you actually gain? Saving is risky because the more you have, the more the temptation to want even more intensifies. It's an odd thing. But if you give yourself too far to this, then it will become the most important thing to you. It's far at better, well, my guess is, if there's anything I'll tell you today that's going to really surprise you, that the Bible says it's this. Proverbs lays out for us the goal, not of poverty or of great wealth but of what we today might call the middle-class life. Did you know that? Proverbs chapter 30 is a prayer. Here's some verses. Verse 7. Two things I ask of you. Deny me before... Deny them not to me before I die. Here's the prayer. Number one, 
Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Number two, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that's needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of the Lord. What a great prayer. Friends, the affluent are tempted to be functional atheists. You might come here on Sunday morning, nod your head, sing the songs, tolerate the masks, but then live the rest of your week as though God doesn't exist. Why? Because you think you don't need anything. Our needs remind us of a God who has no needs. And that His mercy and grace will meet those needs. The temptation to arrogant self-reliance is particularly potent for those with a lot in the bank. It's risky to save because you might set yourself up for a temptation you won't be ready for. And so even as you're saving, I want to encourage you to be giving yourself even more than saving to becoming a genuinely holy person. So that if that wealth does increase, it won't be more than you can bear. Instead of seeking a massive bank account, instead aim to be truthful and modest. Now, if you hear nothing else today, I hope you'll hear this. As it relates to the risk of saving. All the savings in the world cannot save. All the savings in the world cannot save. Our most significant needs as human beings won't be solved by stocks and bonds. And if you reach the end of your life and count on your money to deliver you, you will be sorely disappointed. It won't work. On the last day, Bezos and Gates are in no better position before God than you or me. None. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 4 says, Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Church, uh, a day is coming when the Lord Jesus Christ will return. The King of kings and Lord of lords will come back. And He ain't coming as a baby. He's coming as the just judge. And every single person who has ever lived will stand before Him to receive their due. God will put all things right. And on that day, the Scriptures tell us riches will be worthless. Why? Because God can't be bribed. He will execute justice perfectly. A credit card with no spending limit won't be any more useful than a penny. And the Scriptures tell us that we must live every day for that day. So even in our saving, that savings ought to be about things like being more generous. Not about the elimination of dependency on God. On that fateful, universal, cosmic day, 
Only righteousness given as a gift from God will deliver you from the judgment you deserve. So I'm going to urge you, please, if you're not a Christian, place your trust not in wealth, but in Jesus. He died in your place, rose again in victory, so that all who turn from sin and turn to Him cannot earn something, but can be given the gift of right standing with God. And only that gift is worth anything on that day. If you've already trusted Christ as your righteousness, then let that righteous position righteous living. 1 Corinthians 1.30, we read it last week, says, because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, redemption. Brothers and sisters, if there is one thing you could do this year, that by God's grace, the stress and pressure and anxiety and worry in your home would decrease. And the joy and peace would increase. That one thing, I think for most of us, is that we would begin to save. Father, we pray that you would use these Proverbs to convict those who have much but are not generous and to encourage those who have never even tried to say. And God, we pray that you would raise up among Church on Mill the kind of transparency that would allow us to let each other in, even into this. And so I pray in the coming weeks that there would be tons of wonderful conversations as brothers and sisters share where they are at financially and ask for counsel and help and guidance and encouragement. We thank you that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And if somebody's 50 and they have nothing saved, Thank you that by the Spirit they can start today. Please help us to live different. In Jesus' name, amen.